Well, we're in Habakkuk, and so we're just going to get right at it this morning. We're in Habakkuk chapter 2. We're starting with verse 18. And what's going on here is God has pronounced judgment. First of all, he's pronounced judgment on Judah, the southern kingdom, because they've been worshiping idols. But what he's doing is he's using the wicked Chaldeans, Babylonians, to come in and bring discipline to Judah. But he's also talking now to the Chaldeans, and he's telling the Chaldeans, listen, you're not going to get away with anything. You're not off scot-free. Just because I'm using you doesn't mean that you're not going to come under some kind of punishment. And the difference is, is, because in, is that the, the um, Judah is being disciplined, and the Chaldeans are experiencing, going to experience, the wrath of God. And those two things are completely different. When you walk under the banner of Jesus Christ, He will bring discipline into your life because He loves you. If you don't experience discipline from Jesus, you might want to start thinking about where's my relationship with Jesus at right now because I haven't had any good old-fashioned woodshed spanking from Jesus. But we all need it once in a while. And that's because He loves us. The Chaldeans, on the other hand, they're going to experience the wrath of God. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on all people who hate God and walk opposed and in rebellion to God. And that's the Chaldeans. And so that's the picture we have. And so they're in deep trouble right now, the Chaldeans. And here's what it says in Habakkuk 2, verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. So here's what's happened. In, in every civilization that uh, I think since the, the creation of man, that every civilization has created something that they're going to worship, something that they're going to put on a pedestal, something that's going to be way important to them. And, and what we do is we do call that the uh, idol. And the human heart is an idol factory. We can produce all kinds of things in our lives that become idols. And by the way, it's not just things that are bad. It's good things that become idols. Let me give you some definitions of what an idol is. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart an imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I will feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness meaning in life, and identity, then it's an idol. So what we're going to do is we're going to unpack this a little bit because there are um, a number of idols. I mean, there's a lot of different idols that come into our lives, but I want to just give you the popular ones, the ones that are most evident in people's lives. And so the first, the first idol that is uh, evident to people, and it's the one that we all know all too well, it's self. Self is that, that idol that it's the number one thing because we, we like everything to be about us. We are focused on ourselves. Matter of fact, 
a lot of people, when they choose churches, and maybe you're one of these kind of people, you chose a church with this thought in mind. What can the church do for me? What, how is the church going to meet my needs? How is the church going to meet my family's needs? And so we come in with the kind of that expectation that it's about us, and then so we've got this whole thing. We've been walking to church, and we're wondering, what is God going to do for me today? What is God going to show me today? Is anybody going to love on me? And so we've got this whole thing going on where it's all about ourselves. And, and so idols work in, in, in a lot of different ways. And one of the other ways we see it working in ourselves is if you just take a look at what's going on in our culture. I mean, it's like every day I see these commercials and it shows somebody on a Bowflex or somebody at Weight Watchers or somebody doing the South Beach diet and they all look the same. They're all these chiseled guys with big old muscles and they go to the beaches that way. Right? And the girls, they all look the same. And so we've got this thing where we're in our mind and we're thinking like, if I can make myself look lovely, if I can make myself look beautiful, if I'm very attractive, then I will have what you don't have. I will be better than you. I will, if I can be stronger than you, if I can be more chiseled than you, then I'll validate myself above and beyond you. Now, uh, idolatry is a funny animal because it rarely dwells in, in the dark, deep recesses of life. It really comes to these things that are really good and fashionable and good, and, and good for us. So let's just talk about a couple of them that are going on right now. It's like dieting. There are people who are so crazy about their diets, like, I mean, you know, if you invite them over for dinner, they're going to go like, Oh, no, I'm sorry. Is it gluten-free? Is it fat-free? Is it me-free? And so they have this whole list of stuff, and at the end of the meal, all they've done is they've eaten the little bit of lettuce and one tomato that was in the salad. The croutons, no dressing, no cheese. All the rest of this stuff is put aside because they have to maintain and keep a certain kind of physique so that they look really good. And, and the problem is, is that we take these things that are good and healthy because the Bible even tells us that eating right and eating healthy is a good thing for us. The Bible teaches us not to overindulge. It says don't be gluttons and nobody wants to be a glutton. And so the Bible tells us this. The problem is, is we take what the Bible tells us is good and we make it this ultimate thing over here in diet. Matter of fact, Paul says on this hand, he says that, that physical training is of some value. But what do we do? We take the physical training that's of some value and we make it our ultimate thing. No, I can't do anything today because I haven't run my 47 miles. Oh, okay. You know, and, and there are people that get into these routines where they're going to the gym and, and that's the first thing on their, I go to the gym at, you know, five o'clock in the morning, and then I get done with my, you know, at lunchtime instead of eating lunch, I'm going to go work out, I'm going to do a spin class, and then after lunch, they go back to work, and then before they go home and, and make dinner and be with the kids, they go to their aerobic class, and, and they do Pilates and all the rest of that stuff, and so finally at seven o'clock at night, they roll home, and the kids are all going like, hey, uh, what are we having for dinner? And you go, oh, well, here's some salad. 
It's what I need. And the kids are like, that just makes me sick, Mom. <laughs> so, and, and then there's this competitive thing that, that plays into all of this physical stuff too because it's just purely physical and, and what we want it to be. And I look at, and, and the guys, here's what happens with the guys. The guys are like, look, this is what it's about. I want to do all this stuff so that here's their ultimate goal. I look good with my shirt off. I don't look good with the shirt off anymore because I have an umbilical hernia. It's really disgusting. So, like, uh, shirts are on forever for me. And, and so there's this, this, what happens is these guys want to become the biggest, baddest dudes that they can be. And, and it, it just is messing them up. And, and so what they're doing is they've got this physical physique that they think is the ultimate joy and glory for themselves. It's all about themselves. But then, listen, it's not just the guys that have this going on. I see this among women as well. And there's this fierceness, this fierce comparison that ends up creating a great deal of drama for women because when they watch TV programs and when they watch exercise programs, who do they have up there? They don't have women that look like my body type. They don't have guys up there with my body type. They have these people that all they do is this workout 24-7. You'll never look like them. But they want you to believe that you can. And so there's this unrealistic, unhealthy image of what women should be like in our country. And that's having a devastating effect on women psychologically. The image of the woman having a certain body type or wearing a certain line of fashion is creating an unhealthy view of what a woman should look like and how they should dress. And many women have this thought about themselves. What's wrong with me? And a part of it is that they're, they're getting a glimpse on the dark side of the feminine soul where they're going, do I look like that? Do I need to look like that? I should look like that. Or even at times, there's this horrific self-judgment or judgmental attitude that occurs where things are just going crazy, and it's happening even among godly women. And it's all because self has become the idol. It's, it's what we love, trust, and obey more than God. And we do that with ourselves. Now, some of you are so going like, look, I'm way beyond that thing. I'm never getting on a treadmill again. I, exercise, it's all good and fine, but it took me years to look like this. I'm not giving this up now. <laughs> and so you're not, you're not one of those people that are going, yeah, I'm not. No, nah, yeah, that's no big deal to me. But so what we do there is we go from that whole thing, because that's not the temptation to us, and so what a lot of us do is we have this linear info, information at our disposal. You can go on the internet and you can find just about anything. You, you can become the smartest person you know. And you do it with pride and we show off our brilliance because we have this wealth of knowledge stuffed up here in our melon and we just think that we are the smartest cat out there. And listen, if you want to know something about anything, you talk to me because I've done all the research on everything and I can tell you the best thing on anything. 
and I'm not going to believe it unless I can, I can see it, I can taste it, and I can touch it. And then we become, uh, this whole thing is that our mind has become our idol. And then the third thing about us, ourselves, is, is this, this is still about us, but it works out in every domain of your life where you want to throw out a certain vibe. In other words, I have to have the, the right diesel truck to go hunting in with the right side-by-side -side in the back with the right bow and the right bow and arrows, and I want to give off and I want to portray this image of who I want everybody to think I am. And so when I'm hanging around with everybody at hunting camp, and you're hanging around with people you really don't like anyway, but you want to give off a vibe that you're this kind of a cool dude or gal. And so you, you pretend to be something you're not. And the way that you do it is you buy yourself into this image, this vibe of who you think you should be. And the, the whole problem with that is, is that you go into massive debt to prov prov provide this image, this vibe, so that other people will accept you for who you are trying to portray yourself to be. And that, too, is idolatry. So that's number one. The, and then the second one, His spouse. Now, some of you are going like, I'm not married. I go, well, hang on, because I'm going to get to you in a minute. This isn't just for the married folks. Your spanking's coming. Just sit in your seat and wait for it, okay? So, there's two primary relationships. Primary, I say that. Relation, and, and the relationship one is that of the significant other. There's this whole idea built upon this philosophy of kind of like Jennifer Aniston, that there's this movie of some mythical, right, magical one person out there that's going to make me complete. And, and like, if you can just find the right man, if you can find the right woman, then all that has plagued you your whole life, all that has bothered you, all the loneliness that you have walked in, all the rejection that you have, will have experienced, when you get that right person, it's all just going to vanish and it's going to go away. Now, I just want you to know something if you're single and that's your thought process and you're going through that, everybody that's married makes fun of you and laughs at you about that. Because we know that's not true. And we go, that poor fool, you know what, they need a lot of help. Now, ladies, I want to talk to you just for a minute, but that doesn't mean that, guys, you just turn your hearing aids off and you don't have to listen. You need to pay attention because you might pick up a thing or two that will be helpful, okay? So here's what I want you to know, that... When you've, when you've got this guy that you think, the guy that you've married, the one that you've caught, the one that has said yes to you, and, and you went to the altar with him, then you put expectations on this guy. It's a smothering, exhausting expectation. And he can't do it. And, and, and it doesn't matter how romantic he, he is. It doesn't matter how creative he is. It doesn't matter how careful and thoughtful he is. He cannot be for you that person. He wasn't meant to be that for you. Because there's still going to be this emptiness right here in the middle of your heart. And Ecclesiastes 11.3 tells us what that emptiness is. And it's what God put into each of us. And it says in Ecclesiastes 11.3 that it is eternity that has been put in our hearts. That hole in your heart can only be filled with someone who is eternal. Your spouse 
your husband, that guy, he's not eternal. And so you're going to, you've brought this guy and you think like, this is it. My life is going to be it. I've got this guy. It's going to be the most amazing experience ever. And what you end up with is, is just disappointment. Because you put this expectation on him and, and it's so hard for him to live up under that the, the more you place expectation on your man, he will develop more and more hobbies to get out from the weight of that expectation. He really doesn't love hunting that much. He just wants to get away from you. Now, guys, I want you to pay attention to this. Because the thought of this beautiful physical being who's going to take care of every one of your physical and emotional needs and make up for all the hugs that your daddy didn't give you is going to lead to this unreal conflict in your relationship. So let me just say a couple things to you, fellas. First of all, you need to forgive your dad. He did the best he could with where he was, even if he was a, a, a total schmuck. He did what he could do with being a schmuck. And you need to forgive him because here's the deal. Right now, you're doing the same thing that your father did. You're being the same dad. Some of you are going like, no, you know what? I'm doing way better. I made a decision. I'd be way better than my dad. Well, if that's the case, then that's the grace of God, not your awesomeness. It's only by the grace of God. And then you need to learn to love your wife's soul well beyond her body. She's not your beast of burden. She's not your, hey, where's my dinner kind of a woman. She's not your workhorse. So what happens is a, a man comes into the marriage and says, my woman's supposed to be all of this to me. And a woman comes into the marriage and says, my man's supposed to be all of this for me. And, and what happens is, is that, and, and, the, oh, and, and by the way, singles, <laughs> let's not forget about you, because now you're thinking, if I can just find the right kind of man, if I can find the right kind of woman, then all of my hope is wrapped up in these people, and it's all going to be great, except for one colossal thing. They're human beings, and they're going to fail you. They are going to make a mess of things. They are not going to be who you think they are, who you've... Uh, in your mind, made them out to be. And so, they're going to let you down. And then when that happens, it, the way we deal with that is we talk about, well, it's not my fault that, that he or she is the way. It's their problem. I can't believe they're not living up to my expectations. And so, then they, what we do is we start to do this comparison thing where we're comparing my strengths against their weaknesses. Well, she can't do this, and she doesn't do that, and she doesn't do this, but I do this, and this, and this. Oh, and I do that. And so it's always the other person's fault, and it's always the other thing that goes awry. And so what happens is, is that we have these unrealistic expectations of our spouses that have put the expectation level up here. This is it. And realistic... Down here, and so now you have this gap here. You know what this gap is called? It's the biggest room in the world. 
That's called the room of disappointment. Because what you thought was going to happen up here with the expectation that you've placed on your spouse isn't coming to fruition. And what happens is it comes down here where it's realistic and it's a whole lot lower than you thought it was going to be. And now you're really disappointed that your spouse doesn't meet your expectations. And you're like, what have I done? Guess what happens then? When this becomes the reality of life, guess what happens? They end up in divorce court. Aren't you glad you came today? It's such a happy place. <laughs> so let me just say this. Let me give you a little, little help. Instead of, instead of keeping this, this bar at this level of high expectation for your spouse, let's just do a little bit of a favor and let's just bring it right down here, okay? Let's lower the bar on our expectations of our spouses. Uh, I can tell you right now, if you do that, you're going to find out that your marriage can be happy, happy, happy. And it'll be a wonderful thing. Now, let's move on. Because the other relationship that I see playing out massively is, is with our children. Okay? So we have the idols up here. We have the idol of self. We have the idol of self, uh, spouse. And then we have also our kids. Okay? And, and so we've got all of this going on with ourselves, with our spouses. And then what we do is we put our kids into the mix of it and we think they're going to be the greatest thing ever. So if you have children, what I want you to do is I want you to have this little internal voice you talk to yourself with. You know, like you're doing right now. I'm talking and you're saying, that guy's so full of it, I can't believe it. But you're not saying it out loud. You're talking to yourself. I want you to have that conversation right now. And here's what I want you to say to yourself. I want you to say, my kid is not going to be a professional athlete or musician. Go ahead and say that. No, to yourself, Jamie. <laughs> this is what happens when you have a multiple personality disorder. You think you're talking to yourself, but it's out loud. Okay, so we'll take care of that. All right. So um, here's what we're, we're going to see happening, because statistically, your child, your son or your daughter, is more likely to be struck by lightning while being eaten by a shark than to become a professional athlete or pro professional musician. I just want to get that out there because it's just not going to happen. All right? So you, you talk about the standard, the expectation being here for your spouse. It's probably up here for your kids on how they're going to meet every one of your wildest dreams and needs. You're going to live your life vicariously through them, and that's making them an idol. And, and so the way that we know this is true is because I've watched it play out. Listen, by the way, I want you to know something about me. I love sports. Matter of fact, I think a couple weeks ago I said, we're coming around to the best time of the year, football season. My wife is groaning. And she's like, really, it's preseason and you watch three preseason games? Who cares? I don't know. I just like having the noise of football on, you know. And so, um, and I was outside mowing the lawn, but I had to have a football game on. So, uh, and the reason I know that, that, that your kid is never going to become a professional at any of these things, these sports or musical things, is because I have two boys who for the about 20 years, all they did, all they ever breathed, all they ever slept, all they ever talked about was soccer. Soccer, 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 soccer. I would say to the boys when they were in 
junior high and high school. You want to go fly fishing? No, we're going to go play soccer. Hey, do you guys want to go and hang out downtown and get an ice cream? No, we're going to play soccer. I mean, every time we asked them to do something, soccer was on the top of their list. They got everything. I mean, they had videos. They did everything. They committed their lives to soccer. And guess what? Neither one of them are professional soccer players. Matter of fact, they would probably both tell you, if they were standing here right now, they would say, I made soccer an idol in my life that God had to deal with, which was true. So, just so you know, I understand where it's coming from. And so, you know, for those of you who are still living kind of in the past, you're adults and you've got kids, and you're like, you know what, when I was in high school, I was this amazing athlete. Uh, what I want you to do is I want you to go home, I want you to go up in the attic, or I want you to go into the closet, I want you to get that yearbook out, I want you to get that little uh, trophy that has you, you know, posed like this or whatever, whatever it was that you're doing, I want you to get that stuff out, I want you to take that little trophy, I want you to give it a little hug and a little kiss, take that yearbook photo of you scoring a touchdown or whatever it was you're doing athletically, I want you to hug both those things, and then I want you to throw them in the trash and forget them about them. Because that's not your kid's life. That is not your kid's life. And, and, and what I'll do is I'll validate you. I'll go, yeah, back in the day you were awesome. But that day's gone. That water's under the bridge by about 20 years or more. And so what we need to do is just press on. You're going like, yeah, but I'm really not like that with my kids. Oh, really? So when... When you blow a gasket at a football game or a soccer game or a wrestling match or whatever it is because your kid's not doing what you expect them to do, you're saying that, that they don't get that? Because you don't do that when they're out in the backyard playing with the cousins, playing freeze tag. You're not looking out there and going, come on, Johnny, focus! <laughs> His freeze tag with the cousins, you're like, yeah, they're having fun, that's great. But as soon as, they, as soon as it's organized and they put a uniform on, you become this madman, mad woman. It, you know, in, in Canada, we call them hockey moms. Because they carried sticks and it was, it was scary. So, uh, let me hit this up real quick. Because your children's curricular activities should not govern your home. Your kids' activities should not govern your home. It's a foolish error for several reasons. One is making kids your God turns them into little turds. I know I'm not supposed to say that in church, but I'm going to say it. Because it does. You make these little animals, and then you release them on society, and everybody's going like, no, get away from me. Because you have, you've, you've given them this whole thing that, that, that they believe the world owes them something because they're this magnificent little turd. And nobody likes them. And, and, and your neighbors are going to hate you for it. So don't, don't do that. The second is that at one point in their life, they're going to grow up and they're going to leave home. Do you get that? Yeah. <laughs> now some of you are a little bit too excited about that right now. Wait till they get out of diapers, okay? So what you've got is the little kids that are, are you're, you're, you're pandering to them, you're feeding their little ego, you're making them an idol. You go, Johnny, you're going to be the best thing ever. You're going to be the best athlete, you're going to be the best musician, you're going to be the smartest kid, you're the greatest, you're the greatest, you're the greatest. And it's a big, 
fat lie. And all you're doing is setting up little Johnny for big failure. And then he's disillusioned by the whole thing. And, and he doesn't know what's going on. That's because you've made him this little idol in your life. And so here's what I, here's what I want you to understand is that kid is going to leave the house. And then eventually all your children are going to leave the house. And you know what you're going to be left with? Your spouse. And you're going like, I better get another six hobbies. But that's not the way God intended for any of it to be. What God intended was for your house to revolve around a husband and wife being connected and intimate under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what a house is supposed to be like. Because those kids, you want your job is to, to raise them up to love God. You want them to come up and have a knowledge of Jesus Christ. You want them to be the kind of people who are going to go out, they're going to connect other people with Jesus. That's your job. And when you send them out the door, I love you, go make your own life, and you turn around and you embrace your spouse and go, finally, we're back to where we started before you ever had kids. It's a great, great, great experience. It's a great experience raising these kids. But the problem is, is, is when we do this, when we think higher of ourselves than we should, we make ourselves to be an idol. Then when we look at our spouse to fulfill all these things in our life that they can never fulfill, only Jesus can, they become an idol. And then we take our kids, who are these magnificent creatures, the image of God, and we take them, and instead of them being just in the image of God, they become our small g God. And they ruin our families, our lives, and we become this mess. And then when it's, and, and what, what, sh- what we should be doing is just imparting to these kids the wonders and the glory of God, helping them to understand who they are. And then let's say to them, let's go play ball. Let's go out and root for them as they play. And remember, it's just a game that they're playing when they play football, basketball, volleyball, wrestling, whatever it is that they're doing, it's just a game. And and whether they're excellent at it or whether they're really horrible at it, we're going to cheer them on and say, you are the living image of Jesus. Now listen, Here's, here's the downfall in some of this stuff that goes on. When, when, and I'm still stuck on the kid thing, when your child sees that the only way you show affection for them is when they achieve and they do a great job and you come in and you pat them on the back and you go, way to go, son, that's awesome, that's really great, and, and you're just so awesome and great. And then when they mess up and they have their failure that comes along and then all of a sudden you're like, come on, you can do better than that, Johnny. I can't believe it. And so what they start to do is they start to equate all of this stuff that's going on is, is that I have to perform really well in order to receive affection from my mom and from my dad. It's a performance-based relationship. And if you think that they don't pick up on it, if you don't think that they see that, you're kidding yourself. Because they do, they see it all the time. And, and here's, here's what happens is they see the inconsistency in your life. And they see it from a mile away. And you think you're pulling the wool over their eyes because you're this great person and they know the real you. 
I was talking with a guy a few weeks ago who was telling me about his neighbor. And his neighbor had made this, this big promise to his son. And the son was so excited about the thing that the, the dad was going to take him. It was going to be a dad-son day. And they were going to go out and do this stuff. And they were going to have this great thing. And they, they talked it up for a couple of weeks. Well, the day before, the dad came and said, Hey, listen, someone came by the house last night and stole an important part to, to what we're going to be doing. It's not here. It's gone. It's stolen. So we can't do it tomorrow. And the little boy was telling his 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 neighbor, that we can't do that. And the neighbor goes, hey, I've got what you need. Tell your dad I've got what you need. And the little kid goes, oh, it's too late. He's already gone to work, and he's going to do his own thing. And as the little kid was walking away, I think he's like 10 or 11, he stopped and he turned around and looked at his neighbor, and he said to his neighbor, exact words, you would think that a dad shouldn't lie to his boy. And then he walked off. Shameful. I mean, that's, that's uh, these kids, we, we think that they're not picking up what we're laying down, but they get it. And so here's, you know, don't tell your kids fibs because they can hone in, in it on a second and they'll see where you're consistent. So here's what happens where idolatry plays out. It plays out with our kids, it plays out with our spouses. Kids and spouses, they make crummy, crummy little gods. A crummy god, a, a spouse is a crummy little God. Your child is a crummy little God and a deity. And, and so let me just move on to our next verse. And it says, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. Now there comes a time in our lives when we are going to desperately need divine intervention. And if your God is you or your spouse or your child or your health or your wealth or your vibe or whatever it might be, your intellect, there's going to be a day that you are going to need divine intervention. And if you don't have God on the throne, you're going to be in deep kimchi. You're going to be in deep, deep trouble. And so what I want to do is I'm going to press in a little bit hard with you on a couple of other things because I think it's, it's that I need to stand before Jesus with a clear conscience on it and I think it's also for your joy that we talk about these because idols are normally built around control and fear. That's what they're built around. And so what will happen is, is that we have something that's going on in our life and, and we don't like, we know the fear is going to come. And so what we try to do is we try to control the circumstances, the scenarios, so that we can keep the fear from happening. And that's how idols are built. Now, God charged Israel with idolatry twice for signing treaties with Egypt and the Assyrians. Because he, they, Israel said, we're going to have the Egypts and the Assyrians in our back pockets just in case we get into trouble, and we need some protection. They were looking to these other countries for their protection instead of for God of creation to be their protector and their guide. And God says, that's idolatry. You're looking in the wrong spot for the thing that you need. They become your idol. You're not trusting me for deliverance. You're trusting in your own abilities for your deliverance. 
And, and, and when that happens, we try to control stuff. But there are so many things that you cannot even control. You want your health and your good looks and all of that stuff to be, be your little small g God? You can't control that. I mean, they're trying to help you control. How many of you guys would like to see me with a full head of hair? That means I'd have to go and get on those little pills that they take for Rogaine and all the rest of that stuff. They're trying to tell you, hey, you know, you don't have to lose your hair. You can still be a 20-year-old. God meant for me to lose my hair. And, and, and listen, I have a pirate's chest. It's sunken. It went from here to here. That's what happens when you become a grandpa. And, and those are things that we should not try to avoid. We need to step in and embrace them because this is the way God made us. This is the, the process that God put us into. And so there's a lot of things that are out of your control that you're trying to control because of the fear that comes into your life. And all it's going to take is one little thing because we, we have all these things we call our, our 401k and our finances and all of our savings. And all it takes is one thing from the markets to go sideways and it all comes crashing down and it's worth nothing. And you can't control that. We all work hard at protecting our children, but ultimately you can't protect them from everything. Do you know what you, you have to do, what you can do, what you must do? You have to trust them over to God. Because he's the one that can look after, he looks after them far better than you will ever be able to. And that's all you've got. If you do more than that, you're going to be hard pressing those kids and they're going to rebel against you. And, and then the fear and control thing happens in idolatry with your spouse. And then they're going to betray you at some level, at some way. They're going to let you down. So instead, you move to control and unwittingly actually push your spouse and your kids away because there's no trust, there's no grace, there's no intimacy, there's only control. It's an idol, and the Bible says there will come a day when you need divine intervention, and if you have an idol, it won't be able to speak to you, it won't be able to help you, it won't be able to fix anything, and you will feel completely and utterly lost. Verse 20. But the Lord in his, is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Now remember in the text earlier, we've just been talking that those false gods, they're silent. They can't speak. They can't do anything. They're, they're just, they have nothing. And, but God is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silent. It's not saying that we shouldn't talk to God. It doesn't mean we're supposed to leave God alone. He's in his holy temple, so hush your mouth. But rather it's saying, since the creator God of all things is speaking, let us listen to him, submit to him, and not walk in conjecture of what God must be like or what he must do. So you want to listen to what God is saying. You want to hear what God has for us. And God has revealed his character in scripture. So more than anything, this is saying that God is speaking, so maybe we should listen to him instead of all the other noise and chatter going on around us. Turn your ear, your attention, your heart, 
and listen to what God has to say. Matter of fact, in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, it says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Who, who's speaking to us now? Jesus. How does Jesus speak to us? Primarily through His Word. He has a lot to say to you. These scriptures have been given to us by God. Now, some people like to call the Bible the roadmap for life. Uh, I kind of agree with that, but mostly, you know, that's partly right, but mostly wrong. Let me put it to you that way. Because there are going to be things that come into life that I need to find out. What, what does God say for me to do? And I can find it in the Bible on some things. But when, it's, when, when I was thinking, should I marry that Lorinda May? The Bible didn't say anything about that. She wasn't in there anywhere. No Lorinda May. So guess what? I had to really trust my instincts and hope that she would say yes. And she did. Um, and it doesn't tell you what college you should go to. You will not find that. So it does not give you specific details on the roadmap to life. It's not like you're reading through the Bible and all of a sudden it's like the Bible says, you're right here, turn left. <laughs> not that way. More simply, from Genesis to Revelation, this book is God's self-disclosure of himself in reconciling all things to himself through Christ. More simply put, the book from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus. So when you take a look at the story of David and Goliath, it's not a story, a little kid's story, about overcoming your dif difficulties in life. It's a historical moment that is meant to be a shadow of God saving his people in Christ from sin and death. When you look at the story of Noah and the ark, it's a historical moment. It also shows the shadow that there would be salvation from the wrath of God. As we watch Moses lead his people out of slavery into the promised land, Colossians says it's a shadow of what Jesus would do for us. He would lead us out of slavery into the promised land called his kingdom. So the Bible's not a roadmap to life, although there are aspects of how we live our lives that are found in Scripture. Rather, it's a book about God revealing and reconciling everything back to himself in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I think I can skip a little bit of this. I, I want to come to this, this last passage of Scripture found in Colossians 1. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to be reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to preserve, present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
What God is doing is he's speaking to us through his son, and he is reconciling all things to himself. First and foremost, and most importantly, it is the soul of men and women and children around the world. That's why when we talk about our mission is that we want to encounter Christ, we want to connect with others so that we can reach the world. That's, that's our mission as a church. So this morning you're sitting here, and I believe that the Spirit of God is connecting you with Jesus. And I believe that what He is doing is you are, you are having the manifest presence of Jesus show up right now because some of you have been thinking about areas in your life where you have made idols you have moved God off of this spot and you have put whatever it is up here that has now become the idol of your life. And God says, remove that. And so what we know is we've encountered Christ today. Amen. And so what we want to do is we want to remember that this whole thing, when we come together like this, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so what we want to do is we want to get to that place where we understand that there is nothing you and I can do to fix the issues of our life. God is going to fix it for us. He's going to fix it because he sent Jesus, God in flesh, to live a righteous life under the law, breaking no commandments. And then what he did is he imputed that righteousness. He gave that righteousness to all who believe it by faith. And on the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed all the wrath that was meant for you and for me in our rebellion. And by the power of the Spirit, we've been set free to pursue the God regardless of where we currently are. God loves you right where you're at, but remember, He's not satisfied to leave you there. He wants to move you along. So, I have ten questions that you need to consider in regarding um, uprooting idols out of your life. And so we'll go through those rather quickly this morning. What consumes most of your thoughts and feelings? These are questions you have to ask in order to see whether you've got an idol issue. And by the way, just in case you didn't know it, you do. We all do. The human heart is an idol factory. What consumes most of your thoughts and feelings? What motivates the things that you do? What are you most afraid of? What brings the highest amount of frustration or anger into your life? What is one thing that can change your mood in a second? What would your friends say is your favorite topic of conversation? What are some things that you feel you can't live without? What brings you solace? And what do you yearn for? And the last one, what is the one thing that you wish God would do for you? Let me, let me just, I want to hit this up. This is the last thing I'm going to say to you and then I'm going to pray. Think about the one thing that you say, I cannot live without fill in the blank. I cannot live without my wife. I can't live without my kids. I can't live without my job. I can't live without my house. I what is it that you absolutely cannot live without? 
If it's not God, then you've got an idol issue. And it's really simple. You know what the greatest gift that Jesus has given to us since we've come to faith? It's called repentance. I love repentance. Because it takes and it cleans up all that stuff. All that stuff is between us and God. All that stuff has become a hindrance. All those little idols. We repent. We step up. We trust God. He takes us. He loves us. And it's not performance-based. It doesn't matter whether you ever repent of that idol or not. God will still love you as he always has, and it will never change. But he does want to go deeper with you, and whatever that idol is, it is standing in the way of a deep relationship with God. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it bears weight on us and presses in on us. And I pray, God, I trust that I have not caused any unnecessary offenses this morning. And I pray that your word would speak directly and clearly, that you'd continue to draw our hearts unto you, that you would be the sole purpose for our lives. You've given us all these good things for us to enjoy. Help us not to make them ultimate. Help us not to place them in the wrong order of priority. Help us not to, to, to put those places where they don't belong. Belong. Help us not to put the weight of idolatry on our spouses or our kids. Help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to look at the author and the perfecter of our faith and give us your mercy and grace towards us so that we can move forward with your help. We love you and we pray that you would work in our hearts even now. Move us to the place of repentance and new life with you. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Listen.